Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Music Talks, discussions on music education, brought to you by Florida NAFME Collegiate. I'm David Ramos. Joining me as usual are State Advocacy Committee members Megan Wright and Sawyer Perry. Now, this episode is going to be a little different than previous ones, and that has everything to do with the circumstances everyone is dealing with right now. As many of you know, COVID-19 has changed so much of how humans go about their day-to-day. With social distancing and self-quarantining mandates in place across the U.S., people are instructed to isolate themselves, stay home, wash their hands regularly, wear masks and gloves if they go out grocery shopping or to get gas for their car. COVID-19 has affected how people work, how they have fun, and how they communicate with each other which meant that for this episode, we at Florida NAFME Collegiate had to get a little creative. So we decided to record everything remotely through Zoom, a virtual meeting platform. As you probably have noticed, this pandemic has completely changed how teachers teach. Going from a physical classroom to a virtual one can be a challenge, especially for music teachers. If students and teachers can't come together, what does that mean for ensembles? Is this model of virtual education sustainable for music in general? Can students still have enriching musical experience online as they do in person? To help me find some answers, we at Music Talks did something we had never tried before. We hosted a panel, a virtual panel, of course, consisting of members of the outgoing State Executive Board. Hi, my name's Hannah Vinny. Hi, my name's Julian Grubb. My name is Tyler Murray. And the incoming executive board. I am Addie Burwell. Hi, my name is David Lugo. These individuals are representative of universities and colleges across the state of Florida. Each of them had their own thoughts on this pressing issue and ideas on how to adapt to a new way of teaching. This episode's topic, virtual music education teaching and learning during COVID-19. I'm David Ramos. Stay with us on Music Talks. All right. Wow. Welcome, everyone. Uh, This is our first panel for the podcast, our first virtual panel, which is super exciting. We are currently in uh, unprecedented times. Uh, times when this virtual space is kind of what we're doing day in and day out. We're just trying to navigate that through the realm of music education. So for the past month, education in general has gone virtual, which is insane to think about because we've had the virtual space for some time, probably over two decades now, but we've never been using it consistently to the point that we're doing now here in this space. What have y'all's experiences been with online learning? Have you found there's a learning curve? Has it been good, bad? Um, I think it's been very interesting seeing how everything's changed, especially with music majors who are still doing performance classes. So just so you know, this is Hannah Vinny from the University of Central Florida. She's our secretary for the outgoing executive board. I don't know if any of you guys at your schools have had people doing online recitals, 
but I know that's been a big difference um, in the state, especially because you can't have more of a gathering of like 10 people. So that's been interesting to see. And also with being an internship, it's cool to see how the elementary teachers are progressing to an online system. And it's hard getting like involvement, especially if there's limited technology at home. That was something I found really cool. Um, for me, it was kind of weird because it felt like we never really stopped. Like off of this, all of this started for us after spring break. So we kind of had, I felt like there was a week where everyone prepared and saw what some of the other schools were doing, and then we hit the ground running. This is Anthony Ruffin from Florida State University, our incoming secretary for the state board. What amazed me was the difference it made in the classes where we consistently met physically through Zoom or virtually through Zoom versus those where the teacher just communicated through, like, emails and Canvas announcements. I noticed there's a big difference in terms of, like, motivation and quality of the work I was putting in and uh, kind of the experience, if it was positive or negative, was really based off of that. So I thought that was interesting. So you brought up point, uh, motivation. That's a big factor in virtual education. Students and teachers staying motivated in a virtual space. Because let's be honest, we can easily be on Facebook, on Messenger, while Zoom's happening, while our virtual class is happening, what are some ways that pre-service teachers can, like you all, can stay motivated either in the classroom or just making music at home? So motivation has been a particularly um, interesting issue for me just because I, uh, my main instrument's piano. So I don't get to play an actual piano right now. I'm playing a keyboard. This is Addie Burwell from the University of South Florida, the incoming advocacy chair for the state board. What I have been doing is listening to a lot of music. Um, I know that at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to go to concerts again and see all of the great music that has inspired me to get to this point at the beginning. And also, I will get to perform it someday. But I think listening to music, for sure, is something that is helpful. My experience with motivation has also been very interesting. Um, and it's really hard for me as somebody who's used to being extremely busy um, to now have a lot less on my plate than I'm used to. This is Catherine Atong Mendez from the University of Miami, the outgoing president for the state board. And so the thing that I've found that's helped me is actually not a musical thing at all, um, but I've been running four days a week. <laughs> and that has actually helped me a lot because I get up in the morning and it's the first thing I do to start my day. And like, for those of you who don't know me, I am not a physical person at all. <laughs> like I actually hate it a little bit, um, but it is really, really nice to do something physical um, and to get outside of my house <laughs> and breathe in like fresh air and have sunlight. And that just, it gets me going for the day. It wakes my brain up, it wakes my body up, and it makes me feel like, okay, I've already done something today, let's do something else. And then I'm ready to take out my oboe in practice or start a job application or, you know, work on a project or do a, you know, fake lesson plan or whatever it is I have to do for the day. But that's helped me a lot is actually just getting in the right physical space so that that helps my mental space. Hello. Hey, David. Hi. 
My internet yeah, I... was being weird. How dare you? <laughs> Good to see y'all. Like, Me too. It's weird that's not in person, but you know. Honestly, pretty used to it at this point. Yeah, right. Right now we're listening to Megan Wright and Sawyer Perry, advocacy committee members, talking about their experiences with virtual learning and social distancing. Yeah, I mean, we I use FaceTime for lessons, but... Oh, okay. How's that been going? It's fine, actually. It works really well because I can just put my phone on my music stand, and then mm-hmm. it works out pretty well, and then the video quality is just about the same. That's good. And you've got yeah. Facebook on another, on your laptop over there? I'm no. just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why? How did you get away with that lesson? <laughs> no, you have your computer on the side, and then your phone on your on your stand, and you're like, hold on wait, I got to fix my read over here. And then you check your Facebook status and then go back to the lesson. I feel like I'm not that invested in my Facebook status. Yeah. But... Oh, it's just, it's just me? Oh, okay, cool. <laughs> just <That's> me. Just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What are y'all doing to kind of cope with this, with just being self-quarantined and social distancing from everyone else? Well, I'm here with my roommates. Um, there's three of us here. Sarah actually left this morning, but... There's normally three of us here, so we make sure that we, you know, interact with each other every day, and we're checking in with each other. See, I put myself in as many fantasy situations as possible. I've been just nerding out. That's what I. That's what I do to cope with this. So this this like confinement is to just nerd out, play a lot of RPGs, and um, make stuff. Yeah. Something that I read online is establishing a routine or like acting like you're still going to go somewhere but not actually go anywhere obviously. So this is Mabel Morales also from the University of Miami. She is the outgoing parliamentarian for the state board. So getting up, making food, showering, and then I found a lot of comfort in like still doing a full face of makeup and skincare and acting like I'm ready to go out and do something because it puts me in the mindset of I'm being productive. I'm ready to go out there. I'm ready to do what I have to do. So when I'm sitting down writing a lesson plan or doing a project, I at least feel instantly a thousand times better because I'm like, oh, I've already done so much today. I can do one more thing. So that's helped me a lot with staying motivated. No, I get that. I definitely feel better when my face is all done up, but that's just me. Um, Right. So teachers are using virtual learning resources more now than ever before. Technology and education, specifically music education, has actually been around for quite some time. At this point of the panel, I admittedly let my inner educator get the better of me, and gave a mini history lesson on some important events that shaped the history of American music education, and how technology could be a part of it, starting with the Tanglewood Symposium. Tanglewood. In 1967, was a symposium of educators, sociologists, scientists, people from different fields that kind of came together to support the efforts of music education. Uh, It happened in a time when the United States was in the Cold War, Uh, Sputnik had just launched about a decade earlier, and people were scared and confused. People were worried about, okay, Russia sending spacecrafts into space, we gotta do that too. And that means more emphasis on science, math. And that's where we get Tanglewood. Fast forward a couple of decades later, we get Vision 2020. And Vision 2020 is actually lesser known. This is the House Wright Symposium on the Future of Music Education. And what that was, 
was developing the idea of, okay, we are approaching the turn of the century, what now? Where is music education headed? And in both of those symposiums, uh, interestingly enough, they talk about technology. One thing that we have now that we're currently participating in is what we consider placeless education, where we're participating in schooling, we're learning, we're teaching, but there's no physical space. There's no school. This is it. And right now we're all kind of living in this virtual space and we're kind of thinking about, okay, how do we take music education, the old large ensemble model and fit it here? What are y'all's thoughts of placeless education, its effects on music education, and specifically what we've had since like the 1900s, the large ensemble model, your bands, your orchestras, your choirs? Yeah, so, um, you know, growing up in this uh, system where everyone's in the same room and we're all working together to achieve this common goal, which is making music and learning about music, um, I feel that it's a slow process, but I think virtually we're almost able to achieve those same goals. So right now we're listening to Tyler Murray from Florida Southern College, the outgoing treasurer for the state board. It's just a little, it feels different right now because we're used to being in the same room with our friends and hearing those sounds right next to us and to feel those instruments on our hands. And it feels different, but we're able to achieve it at the same time which is kind of amazing with the technology that we have. So it's not a bad thing right now, but it's just a different feeling that it's taking us a while to get used to. And pretty soon, once the next school year starts, it might just go back to how we've been doing it for almost a, over a hundred years, which is pretty interesting. When, when I look at a placeless learning environment, um, and I think about like the large ensembles that we traditionally have, in our uh, like secondary schools, I feel like it's really hard to have that same kind of ensemble with a, a restriction like virtual learning. This is Julian Grubb from Florida Gulf Coast University, the incoming president for the state board. Um, and I think that if, if we were gonna try to move to a placeless music education environment, that we would definitely have to change the landscape of how we do music education across the board, um, which I totally for, but I just, that, that's what I see because like for us, it, it, maybe we could make virtual learning in a large ensemble work with click tracks and things like that. But with our students who uh, don't necessarily want to be musicians are just there because their parents put them there or are just there because it's fun, things like that maybe wouldn't be con as conducive a learning environment for music education as uh, say being in the class would be. What are you guys' thoughts on places education and its effects on music education, specifically like large ensemble models? Um, I was giving us both. Um. I was both uh, just giving us both time to think. It's fine. So we're now jumping back to Megan and Sawyer to hear their perspectives on placeless music yeah, education. I don't, and this is partly jumping ahead to like what I know we will talk about later, but like, I I don't like the spaceless like classroom idea for ensembles and for creating with people. It's fine for creating on your own because you don't, you only need your own space to create something on your own. But once you want to create with somebody else, I am always, 
always more creative with that person and can understand where they're coming from. And especially when it comes to music making, it's, it's such a physical activity and like you can understand what a person means so much more when you get their whole body language and make that eye contact, that physical connection. Yeah, that, I mean, the collaboration that we're used to in a normal music class where there's the back and forth in between players and the back and forth in between like the conductor or the teacher and the players, obviously we can't have that online. I mean, a lot of people are doing the thing where they record their part individually and then you put it together and you're like, oh, they're performing together. Well, no, they're not. They're performing on their own and it's just put in a video together. So, I mean, you can call that collaboration, but that's not anything near what we're used to in a music class, what we could be getting if we obviously we were in person. And what I think is the big reason why a lot of people enjoy music so much and why music class tends, especially in like middle school and high school for a lot of students, you know, music class becomes their outlet and their safe space. And that collaboration and that team effort is part of what makes that what it is. And there's basically no way to recreate that when we're all sitting hundreds and thousands of miles apart, how far apart we are in our own rooms, playing our own little part. It's just not the same. Yeah, so the thing about the placeless uh, situation to me is that it's always going to be temporary. It's not as though our entire career is going to be from our bedroom now. And so there will be a time where, again, we can all come together and make music. I think that a way that we could actually take advantage of this opportunity is how can we get students to still love music without actively making it with others? What are the other elements of music that we all love and how can we encourage students to want to come back and make music even though they might not be in our class in the future? Because as music educators, we want to instill that love of music in them anyway, so why not start now? That's a great point and actually a great segue for a couple other questions. So some of y'all may not know this, I actually spoke with composer Libby Larson on uh, the same topic. I asked her at one point if she thought that the virtual format that we have now is sustainable for music education. And she pretty much flat out said no. no. I, I, I think music education will try to sustain it mm -hmm. uh, because it looks, it looks like, like it's an, an answer, answer. But to her, it's not the solution. And it goes back to making music in the physical space. If you think about not just the social aspect, but kind of the psychosocial of being in a room and breathing the and same air. Music is physics. That's one thing that it is. Mm -hmm. no, that's one thing that it is. And what that means is that the air in the room, you know, is shaping and reshaping. It almost, it, I mean, from from my perspective, almost infinitely, but it's not, it's not infinite. You know, it's, um, it, uh, it, it is shaping and it's reshaping as we actually put sound into the air, you know, and affect the, the, the way that the air is moving in waves in the room. Um, and that has um, natural physical effect on the people who are in the room, just because of the audit cortex of the human body and its connection to the um, to the uh, nerve centers in the brain that um, that are many things one of which is emotional response that affects you as an individual that affects students being next to their friends making music in a place that's theirs as opposed to I'm in my bedroom I'm by myself this is my own air my own space 
So going back to the idea of sustainability, do you all think that virtual music education is sustainable? Um, so like, like I said to the last question, I, I think that when it comes to like ensembles and things, that would definitely have to change if we were trying to have a format where we were going to stay virtual. Uh, however, I think that a lot of the lecture-based classes and things like that, we could easily do online. Um, like it, there, there are plenty of different video, like essay type things that, that uh, professors could do if they wanted to do their lecture type thing, or they could provide an alternate uh, assignment for that. I've actually noticed a lot of my professors have gotten a lot more organized now that they get to sit in their living room and make their lesson plans. However, that's not true for all of them. Uh, but it has been nice to have some of those classes be a little bit more structured. Uh, and, and not only that, but once, once we have a set meeting time, uh, they send us the stuff ahead of time. We meet in the class, we talk about it, we discuss. The, the only downside that I see to having a virtual uh, platform like that is the conversations and discussions that can be brought uh, um, in person uh, that are a little easier that way. Uh, just I, I think that in person is a little easier to hear from everybody's voice. It's very easy to be the thumbs up that didn't get called on in a chat. And actually speaking of that, um, Catherine, I saw your thumbs up. I'll get to you. Sorry, I can't figure out how to raise my hand. It, when I click participants, it doesn't come up on my thing. I guess it's because I'm good. doing it on my iPad. I don't know. It's but anyway, I, I was going to say, actually, basically the same thing that you were saying, David. I do not think that this model is sustainable for music education at all. Um, the thing that I've heard the most from, you know, current music teachers that I've been talking to right now is that, for music theory classes, this works totally fine. But for any sort of ensemble or performance-based class, this is not something that's sustainable at all. And I was thinking about um, a video that we watched in one of our seminar classes this semester. And I sent the link to it in the chat in case if you guys have like a free 10 minutes, um, if you want to watch it. It's actually really interesting about the way that our education system is designed and why it's designed this way. But it talks a little bit about um, what you were saying earlier, David, about the community aspect of learning and in learning in groups of people. And that's what we as humans need in order to really like come up with ideas and think about things and learn through that you know, shared connection with other people. And I think that that's so important. And even though we might think that this is a sustainable model for maybe academic classes, you know, other classes where this is working fine, even though it looks like this might be something that we can continue to do, I don't know if it necessarily should be. So uh, Dr. Cornelia Yarborough, she brought up the question over 20 years ago now, how virtual can music education become? And at this point, I really can't see how we can get any more virtual, if you know what I'm saying. But that's only because this is the technology we have. That's not to say in another 10, 20 years, we'll have the capabilities of doing a virtual reality ensemble where there's no lag, everything works smoothly, and we have the large ensemble space in the virtual world. To me, Virtual ensembles won't be the same because of the social aspect of an ensemble. There's the finished product, but also there's that process and collaborating with those people in real time. 
And this virtual ensemble might take away part of that process that makes that finished product even more meaningful. So that's why to me, this virtual ensemble won't work out in the future, even if the technology might be there. So we obviously don't have a crystal ball the scenes in the future. Do you think though that we could eventually have that technology to say, we can have that same experience in a rehearsal room in a virtual room? Do you think so? No, because I feel like when, when we have this virtual room, we kind of limit the time in which, you know, time is very important in terms of music. And we're, we're shrinking some of that time in this process, which might be efficient in terms of the music making part of it, which is, which is great. We all wish we can have great music in a shorter amount of time. But to me, it, it's more than just that finished product because there's so many other things that, that spin off from the interactions, the process, the, pers- the, per- the kids sitting in that room saying, wow, I really like this whole collaboration. I like being here with these people. I wanna continue to do this when virtually it's kind of like you've sectioned each person still. But I think there is technology that that will eventually happen to make this a virtual ensemble, yeah. Just like Dr. Larson, our state committee members had similar opinions when it came to the sustainability of virtual music education. I think this virtual music education model is sustainable. Do you think it's like a viable option for providing students with an actual musical experience? No. No. Absolutely not. I think there are aspects of it that could be helpful in very like specific situations. Um, like in our private lessons, I don't really feel like that part of my education is struggling that much because I'm still getting an hour every week with my teacher and he's still able to sit down one-on-one with me and hear me fairly well. It's not perfect, but it's okay. So I think there are some parts of it that are, you know, if you needed to, obviously it'll work, but this this is not what music is about. Yeah, um, the short thing is, like it's, it is not sustainable way of music education, but we are learning a lot of really cool ways to supplement music education. I feel like that's the key is in this necessity that we have right now, we should take what works well and see how we can now add to what we had. Um, So one thing that I thought about in response to this question is that there is a disconnect with virtual, but a bigger issue that we have not talked about thus far is equity with students schools closed, not every student has access to their primary instrument. If a student didn't have a tuba at home, they're not able to go rent a tuba from a store or get one online or whatever to keep up their musicianship. Um, If a student's parents work at home, they might not be able to practice in their bedroom just because their parents are on a Zoom call. The thing about this that is an exciting possibility is the idea that you you can modify ensembles more. So let's say a student doesn't have a tuba, but they have an electric bass at home that can plug into like a smaller speaker or something and it can be fed through a computer. That makes a lot less noise too. So I think that as long as the idea of making music is still a focus, it's something that can be implemented. It's just we have to consider how every student is going to be able to handle these consequences. Because not every student is going to be as lucky as we are to keep practicing. Kind of along the lines of what Addie and Julian and Catherine were saying, 
accessibility to students is a big issue that they're having right now. Speaking now is David Lugo from Southeastern University, the incoming treasurer for the State Board. Students not having access to get the technology to even do their classes, they're sharing one device per family of five in these rural areas. And when you think about, like, they may have their instruments at home, but like Addie was saying, if they have, I have two younger brothers that also play instruments at home. Like, my practice room space that I used to have at school is now a little 10 by 10 room, which is discouraging because then you hear yourself and you're like, this doesn't sound like the band room or the auditorium or anything else that you're performing in. And it makes, it kind of discourages you in a way when you're making music and you're like, am I getting better? Am I getting worse? But I think this is less of a time on focusing on what we already know music is or we define music as. And it's more about redefining what music can be, like these people envision 2020. These ideas that would have never been thought of before, now there's a catalyst to start these ideas. I'm really glad you brought that up. That's what the Vision 2020 guys talked about, is making music effective and excellent, but uh, equitable as well. Um, and if we're providing these <laughs> options that are technological, but not all of our students have the technology, then it really hasn't served its purpose. So yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, I see Mabel. Hello. So I agree with everything that's been said before. We are well aware of the issues that have been coming up with all of this virtual learning, but I do think of one positive. I think this is an avenue to open up to more experiential ensembles so more composition, more improvisation, having more of contemporary music. So perhaps you can have one student who's gifted in playing the guitar who would record an accompaniment track and then another student can, you know, create a song with that, maybe write lyrics. And so you can have a lot of interconnectedness within your class, even when far away, but it allows your students to feel encouraged that their music is important. Um, and as well as students who might be interested in being a DJ or electronic music, um, like our university had a laptop ensemble. And so I think that this is a way for more of that music to come up and not necessarily say, okay, like, sorry, we're not going to do band, choir, and orchestra right now, but it allows them to see why the skills that they've been learning in those ensembles are so important because they can then apply them to new types of ensembles. I want to take those ideas, I want to transition to uh, a slightly more philosophical, radical idea. Mabel talked about students creating, composing uh, online on this virtual platform, and that kind of ties into some national standards speak, which is the three artistic processes. You've got creating, performing, and responding. Performing, we've, we've mentioned, is a little difficult, especially in a large ensemble setting, uh, but you can easily compose. The big one I want to talk about, though, is listening. Um, and this goes back to that talk I had with Dr. Larson. There's so much, there's so much performance in listening. Um, I can tell you that because I'm a composer. You know? And so listening is, that's, my brain is most developed in the art of listening. You know? and, there, um, and there's beauty and success and music making. You actually don't need a flute. No, I mean, I'm just using the flute. Sure. But you actually don't need the live instruments to make music in your brain. You don't need them. 
no. Uh, and uh, uh, and you can make incredible music in you know in your brain, uh, and you can train your brain uh, to to listen to the most simple and the most complex music um, in a way that actually is performing in your brain. With her idea of listening as a performance art, students being performers while listening. What are your thoughts of this uh, as listening just being an important role in virtual education? So with listening, although we can't have like face-to-face ensembles like we were talking about before, um, one thing our jazz band did was like a listening assignment. So it kind of goes on. This is Alexis Hobbs from Southeastern University, the incoming president-elect for the state board. And um, it was just a listening guide and it was um, basically you had to listen to our piece that we did and we had to listen to each specific section and pick out certain parts. So although we're not actually physically playing the music, we're still able to um, listen to it on our computers and have more depth and listen to things that we may not have heard while we're sitting there in the ensemble. Like, for example, in one of our pieces, I would have never, me playing saxophone on the front line, I would have never noticed that like the drummer was playing uh, like certain beats with the brushes on the snare drum. So just having that extra assignment through virtual learning, specifically with listening, helped me develop different things for a jazz band, especially with me, my primary being violin and not saxophone. Um, And that being my first time playing in a jazz band really helped me and could help future like even high school students doing it as well. That's a valid point. Uh, Active versus passive listening, making sure that students are engaged by identifying different parts of the music. I just realized I was going to quote this. This is from, I don't know if you know Anthony Storr, who wrote a book called Music in the Mind. He talks a little bit about the solitary listener listening alone. Uh, He mentions how music can and does affect the listener without having to be experienced live or in the company of others. So just another thing to think about while you're answering this question of listening as a performance art. I see Anthony, you haven't spoken in a bit. Yeah, so, um, you know, I think of responding and listening. That's always something I feel like uh, we always, you mentioned the standards, it's always been in the standards, but we always wish we had more time to do it, right? We get so caught up in rehearsal sometimes and 50 minutes, or if you're in a block schedule, maybe it's a little easier to incorporate listening, but I know back in the day we did our best, but sometimes it was kind of tough to incorporate that. But now I think when you look at like Leonard Bernstein back in the day, he had the young people's concerts on TV on the weekends. And it's it's like, we can kind of approach that in many ways. We can use that and provide, have teachers who are currently teaching, give uh, workshops on what they're doing and see if other people, you know, they come and just listen and see if there are things they can pick up or, you know, you continue the conversation, even though we're going into the summer, you know, continue the conversation and see what other people are learning through different platforms that are becoming available or things like that. And just kind of see what people can do with the given situations that we have. Because, I mean, I think back when I first started music at a higher level Um, we were using things like smart music and stuff like that so virtual music has always been around but like you said earlier we just never really 
relied on it because we had our model that was so successful. So, you know, I hear Dr. Kelly saying play devil's advocate a little bit. I'm pretty excited to see kind of where this can grow to, um, depending on how long we're here. And in terms of virtual ensembles, I think, you know, we can explore things like playing with click tracks. And um, uh, I think of Westglade Middle, they do this uh, pass off system where weekly students have to do a certain amount of things out of a book. And I think those are things that you can try to incorporate if that's how your, your band can work to increase individual practice or why not have universal lessons that you can do as a family if there's multiple students. I don't know. I just, there's a lot of things I think we could do. Just it's time. Let's see who comes up with what. And I'm excited to see what comes out of that. Are you thinking you'll come up with something in the near future? I don't know about all that. <laughs> well, we got the time. You never know. Yeah, I guess. So... Same book, Anthony Storr. Uh, he has a statement where he says, making music together is an irreplaceable way of achieving closeness. And I think we'd all agree that this whole Zoom thing is great for seeing each other's faces, but it's no compar- like, there's no comparison between being in the same room, shaking someone's hand and uh, giving a hug and just being there for them physically. But now we're in this place where we have to be alone. And that can be challenging, and technology has really helped in that and has helped us stay together. And that's the operative word, because originally, before technology, together meant, okay, a bunch of humans come together for a concert or for a rehearsal. Now it's different. So in today's culture, what do you all think it means to be together? I think that technology has made it really accessible for us to be able to be with people without being physically with one another. But I think in some senses it does matter, you know, if you're physically with somebody or not, because, you know, we can be here on a Zoom call and we can be talking to each other and seeing each other's faces and hearing each other's voices and it's it's almost like being in person, but it's not, you know, it's, it's almost like being in person. We're not in person. We're not able to have that, you know, physical contact. If we wanted to shake somebody's hand or give them a high five or give them a hug, we're not able to, you know, like you talked about earlier, be breathing in their air, you know, which kind of sounds gross at this point in time, but you know, I think that there really is something to be said for that in-person connection. And I'm not trying to say that, like, we are having a bad time or, you know, even though it is a bad time in a lot of other aspects, you know, I do want to recognize that technology has, you know, been extremely beneficial to us in this situation. And we are so fortunate to have the accessibility means that we do. Um, But I just, I'm so afraid that, you know, our, our technology use in this time makes us forget the importance of really being in person and being able to connect with people in person. Does that make sense? No, it does. And to go back to your point, I'll give a quick personal story that really has nothing to do with music, but a couple months ago, I was actually on a virtual date, which was cute. We had like 
dinner in our own rooms and we dressed up and I think it was Italian. So we both did like microwave pasta, you know, college meal stuff. And there was a point where I had like my hand stretched out on the table and she had hers stretched out. It's like we were holding hands, but we weren't. So it's that idea that Catherine, you brought up of it's like, but it's not really. And it's, it's hard to get there specifically on this platform. So it's kind of, I have, what I'm saying is going off of a lot of what we said already. It's that humans by nature, we're supposed to be, we're communal. We're not supposed to live alone. We're not supposed to be by ourselves, isolate. You're now hearing from Brandon Pasquance from Southeastern University, the incoming parliamentarian for the state board. By nature, we're supposed to live in big communities. So one of the biggest reasons why we joined band, choir, orchestra was for the social aspect was that our friends were doing it and that we want to feel part of a group. So by being self-isolated and not able to be in these large physical groups where we can meet in person and get to see each other's faces and interact kind of takes away some of that community that was we took years to develop. So the fact that we're now on Zoom, Google, Hangouts, Duo, it, it's a little discouraging because now I don't get to wake up at 8 in the morning and I get to see David or I get to see Alexis or Dr. Belfast. Now it's, I get to go on my phone and see their phone that's projecting them, basically. So in order for this to be like continuous, in order to keep doing it, it kind of needs to be a combination of both physical and uh, technological. Because without the meeting, it's going to be very hard to keep students motivated, to keep them on, like, on task and focused. Because a big part, of, like the backbone for these groups is that it's social. We get to see each other. We get to make friends and really live in that community that we desire as humans. Yeah, with the whole being together thing, it's having to be separate from people physically has given me a greater appreciation for that. I've definitely, you know, stressed practicing for wind ensemble and almost shredded going at times. And I will never think that way again. I will be so grateful. I've thought about the moment I get to sit down in class again and I will like I have freaked out over it I am so excited um that's not the kind of enthusiasm that I've had since I've started at school music so as bad as this is now I'm like I'm personally not in a great emotional space with all of this there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that's what this whole thing is motivating me towards yeah that'll definitely be definitely be an interesting conversation for teachers to have with their students when they come back uh, is to see their change uh, and if they're really motivated to be back because they haven't been there for so long. So I'm really interested to see, even though I won't be teaching yet, uh, just to see what students' thoughts are. Hopefully something that we'll all get out of this experience is a renewed sense of intrinsic motivation. I think that like I said, it's really easy to just kind of like let yourself go and not work hard and just be like, oh, this is what it is. There's only so much I can do. Well, like, yes, there is only so much you can do, but there's always ways to push that. And I promise you, you can do more than you think you can. So the people that I think are going to end up thriving the most in this situation are the people that are most intrinsically motivated. And making yourself be intrinsically motivated is not, is difficult, but it's a life skill. And if that's something that we can get out of this, then cool, let's take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. That's so true. So going back to you all personally as 
uh, future teachers has teaching and more so learning during COVID-19 uh, affected your philosophy of teaching music in any way? Um, this idea of expanding what you think music can be. We were writing, I was, we just had a film response to do for our music history class as our final. And it was talking about, because it's music history three, so it's talking about world culture and what do we often define as music? And that's kind of the question that we got asked at the beginning of the semester is what is music? And we've had a couple of talks on the state board about this too, is nobody really can officially define what music is. It's different for everybody. And teaching and learning it is gonna be completely different right now, but it's still music. I'm getting the opportunity to do more hands-on teaching than I've gotten to do all semester. And I'm not, it's made me think more about what I have the knowledge to do as an educator. And just having some extra free time, giving us the opportunity to invest in practicing without having to actually be in front of our students. Um, just experimenting with what we can do and this is times to try and fail and then get back up and just do it again yeah that was well said i definitely agree so i'm gonna leave you all with a couple more quotes i've got one last question and then we'll wrap up um something from bennett reamer who hopefully you all know he wrote we music teachers must not forget that teaching and learning are our primary functions so that we must conform to the best that is known about how to teach effectively and how to provide the most fruitful possible environment for learning to occur, which th these words were written back in something like 1970. They're extremely relevant today. They resonate so well with the fact that we need to learn how to utilize this virtual space in order to be effective, engaging teachers. Uh, and that leads me to my last question, which focuses on music as a means for a true aesthetic experience. Students feel things when they hear music, they have their own specific emotions tied to pieces, uh, and you get a different experience when you listen to something passively in a supermarket than when you're in uh, an audience listening to a full orchestra playing Beethoven 9, guaranteed. But it's interesting to think that while we're in this virtual space, students can still have a valid aesthetic experience, even though they're not playing music in a physical sense. That's just for me though. Do you all think that students can attain that uh, while they're in their homes, their living rooms, their bedrooms, and doing this, doing everything virtual? Um, I think that's a really interesting question because you really can kind of break it down into the various levels um, and then the groups, categories who you're trying to uh, reach with the certain lessons. But for me, I really think of like, okay, through the education, through this medium, do we want to focus on the product versus the process? Um, because I feel like, like you mentioned, like some people, they get a kick out of, you know, they can do the the music theory stuff all day or listening this you can do more listening and you can do more understanding of um, aesthetics and talk about how you feel and, and more of that kind of stuff 
But um, as mentioned earlier, a lot of people really rely on the physical act of playing the music and those interactions through music with other people. So, you know, I think it's possible. Um, and I, I'd be interested to see what the majority would be. I think that'd be, that could be a great poster session one day is to figure out what the preference would be um, or something like that. But I, I definitely, it's, it's interesting and I don't have an answer for it, but it's definitely something that I've thought about and I think is worth discussing more. That's fair. And as long as you're thinking about it um, and aware of it, that's definitely something. Uh, let's do Julian. You can go ahead. Um, I was going to say that uh, at the different levels, like depending on where you are in your musical journey, I feel that uh, online virtual music education would need to be definitely tailored to who, whatever your situation may be. Um, I feel like now is a great time for us to be enforcing the fundamentals like ear training and things like that, that, that really make our musicality musicality. Um, and, uh, and I think that just like Anthony was saying with, with any developments that we have, uh, I think that, uh, it's, it's, it really is about the, the process or, or the product, which one do we want to emphasize? Do we want to emphasize the performance or emphasize making of the music and how can we incorporate what we want to see out of those things into virtual music education? Um, and like Anthony, I mean, I don't have an answer for that right now, um, but I, I just think that's definitely something we need to think about is how can we, how can we improve everything so that, um, so that like Mabel said, it's all about the music. So the way I see it is through the eyes of the performer where it uh, virtually it is attainable, but to a certain degree, it's not going to be as, as worded as aesthetic as a physical performance feeling the rush of being on stage, dressed up, performing for your family in person with a large group. It's attainable through like the virtual orchestras, but to a certain degree, there's not that, it's not the same feeling. It doesn't have the same, like the right factors in play. You know what I mean? No, I definitely do. And I would very much agree hundred percent. Well, thank you all so much. We covered some great topics. You all had some great comments. And I definitely have some really strong content for this next episode. So I guess we'll officially sign off, but I thought this was great. Hey, thanks for listening to Music Talks, discussions on music education. And I know it's been a while since our last episode was released, but I figured now was an appropriate time to cover a topic that's on every educator's mind. We at Florida NAFME Collegiate understand that this is an especially stressful and trying time for future teachers everywhere. Wherever you're listening, we hope you're safe, healthy, and making music. This episode featured our incoming and outgoing state executive board members, as well as recorded audio of composer Libby Larson, used with permission from Dr. Larson herself. Introduction music composed by Evan West. Original music featured throughout the episode, as well as the song you're listening to right now, were composed by Mike Ramos. Our state advocacy committee members are Megan Wright and Sawyer Perry. I'm David Ramos. Thanks for listening to Music Talks from Florida NAFME Collegiate.